This is Transmission 7 of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System. I'm your host Mikey, and in this episode, Gordon White returns, this time to talk about his new book, Starships, A Prehistory of the Spirits, available now through Scarlet Imprint. As he, Gordon will remind us later, that's scarletimprint.com. It's an excellent book. I like it a lot. So I got Gordon on to talk about it. And that's pretty much the whole show. Just Gordon and I talking about his book. With a quick aside to the nightmare future of the prison planet. Now, if uh, you haven't listened to the show before, you might want to go back and check out Gordon's last appearance, where we really dug into the material we talked about briefly in that aside. Uh, the episode was called Breaking Down the Breakaway Civilization, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, that's the whole thing. All you need to know is we talk about a whole bunch of stuff like extra-dimensional trickster gods, what Crowley was actually doing in that pyramid in Giza, uh, a whole bunch of stuff about Jacques Vallée, who is awesome, and, oh yeah, Sunderland, you know, that continent that existed before the Ice Age, and what that all means once you, uh, you know, fold your mind back and, uh, as Gordon says, regrid history, which is what he spends 120,000 words doing, and it's freaking excellent, and I'm going to shut up and let you listen to him talk now. Sing us out, Melanesian Choir. Good morning, Gordon. So, I just finished your book this morning, and it was very good. Tell me about it for an hour. An hour? Yeah, you don't want to lead with some questions? Look, I wrote, I wrote a whole bunch of things down here, but um, yeah. I'm just going to let you talk. Nah, it's well, you didn't, you um, didn't tell me this beforehand, or otherwise I would have. I would have listed a whole bunch yeah. of stuff. that, Yeah, you know, stringent opinions about politics that are not at all related to the book. So you're talking about Starships, A Prehistory of the Spirits, available from scarletimprint.com, I presume. Yes. Got to get that in there. Scarletimprint.com. Buy my book. Buy his book. It's very good. I might have been quoting from you randomly on Twitter. Oh, nice. That's a bit of a spin out, actually, when you see that or on Tumblr, where you see, oh, I wrote that. That's quite cool. Or photos from inside the book. All that kind of stuff. No doubt. So um, let's just segue then into where have you seen it on Tumblr? In, in, on, the, on the magical Tumblr circuit? Um, usually people, I don't spend a lot of time on Tumblr because I don't hate myself that much. Uh, people tend to send me the links to where it's, uh, where it's been uh, shown. So I have an open comment, which is that this book, first of all, I have to congratulate you because it's excellent. Um, 
and it, it doesn't feel like a debut at all. It, it feels like it's the book you've been writing for a long time. Is that true? Uh, yes, if you count writing in my head. Uh, I, I had to kind of start with this book because otherwise every other book I'd try to write would turn into this one because mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely been a, a story that's been following me or I've been following it for 20 years. That explains why it feels so well thought out and meticulously researched. Well, that's a partial explanation. Maybe I'm just really good at that. Maybe. There is also that. Probably I mean. not. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely, a lot of people have said that. They're like, this seems, uh, this seems like a longer project than an 18 month book. And it is definitely. Well, I mean, you opened with your, uh, how old, t teenage? Was it teenage adventures? Scuba diving? Uh, some of them are teenage. So how old was I when I went to Nan Madol to do that documentary? I was probably 20. I was 19 or 20. Probably 20 when I, when I start to think about it. But uh, yeah, so I'm, as you know, Australian born and raised, but the family has quite the sort of Pacific footprint. Uh, we'd spend all our holidays in different places like, you know, Samoa or Fiji. And my aunt was born in New Guinea and my grandfather was part of colonial administration in Nauru and New Guinea and all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm kind of from a region rather than a country in that respect. And, and then a lot of those stories. And then my dad speaks pidgin English, not often, but he can actually do it. Uh, and so a lot of those stories have, have been around kind of growing up and, uh, and it, it sort of went from there. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> it really did. Um, I, I love, now I can't pronounce it correctly, the um, Indonesian pyramid. That's oh, Gunung Padang. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so do you have any inkling that they'll actually get to excavate it properly soon? Uh, they, I mean, they've done it a little in the last year. They've done a bit more of the uh, sonar research. But yes, the money keeps vanishing because, to be honest, when it comes to a site that does something like this to the world, uh, you have a lot of pushback or, or a lot of turbulence, which means it's really quite challenging to conduct the excavations or conduct the research in a way that is amenable to kind of like the wider archaeological community. And in some senses, they haven't really done that. Uh, the people involved are, are, are you know, fully qualified from a geophysical point of view. But they've kind of run with it and declared Atlantis and, and all this sort of stuff beforehand. And you're just leaving yourselves open to the sort of backdoor politics that runs the funding of this kind of stuff. And uh, so it's going to be patchy going in and out. Because the, the other side of it is you can't sort of go softly, softly uh, and, and try and have it warp into existing paradigms because then you won't actually be able to get the information out. Realistically, the only person who's done it successfully in the last few decades has been Dr. Klaus Schmidt, who discovered Gobekli Tepe and is now dead. And he was just sort of relentless with it. And in that kind of German methodical, um, prove me wrong way. And it wasn't at all hostile. He just kept like each sort of end of season report had all this amazing new stuff in it. And it was quite uh, dispassionate. 
and we haven't got that with Gunung Padang. There's been you know, already a couple of books like you know Atlantis in Indonesia and other stuff coming out. And I guess it depends what you want to do politically. If you just want, you know, if you want to give the site to the Andy Collinses of this world, then that's exactly what you do. But if you do, in fact, want to have this information more rapidly absorbed into kind of archaeological discourse, that's not how you go about it. Eventually it will, but because of the, they've been kind of, you know, New Dawn magazine and, and Plato talking about Indonesia and all this stuff, it means they've kind of pushed back 20 years the absorption of that information into the wider archaeological discourse, which is disappointing, but at least, you know, we'll, there'll be some excavation at, at some point. Because the, the geophysical survey information is, is sound. The, the site has been shaped for 20,000 years. Uh, it wasn't a pyramid so much as a shaped hill back then, a shaped volcanic hill, but that is hugely significant, especially when you fold it into Dr. Witzel's Laurasian idea, given that pyramids seem to be associated with what he calls the Laurasian mythology as it spreads out kind of west and east from Asia into the Americas and obviously up into kind of Samaria and Egypt and so on, and China. Um, now, just b before we sort of get into, how do you say, Dr. Witzel? Witzel, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to make, uh, to explore the idea that that archaeology, this is the thing I noticed in reading your book and, and reflecting on, because you're pushing back everything to tens of thousands of years, you know, where most people's conception of history and prehistory is either a few thousand years and then dot, 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 the dawn of time sort of thing, right? Yeah. And what we're sort of highlighting here is that archaeology, I want to say archaeology or mythology in general, is this weird intersection between politics science and mythology as well i mean that's that's what we're saying but you know yeah well there's there's politics to telling the stories of the past and there, there always has been so it was in dynastic egypt it was the priests who would have i mean they didn't really use dynasties in that sense but it was certain temples that would have the story of the creation of egypt and the, and the lineages of kings so um, the king list in, in Abydos and, and that kind of stuff. So the politics of who gets to tell us where we come from has always been murky. And a big part of the book is to, to sort of really highlight to people in this I fucking love science world that we've kind of rendered over the power of that storytelling to idiots in a way that um, we shouldn't have to. Like, they're, they're, it's not even a difference of opinion. They're wrong, like wrong. <laughs> and uh, the only way to kind of move past that is to take responsibility in a, in a balanced way for that storytelling and that research. And it's, it's one of the perhaps unintended side effects and one of the few good things about the digital realm that we can, in fact, do that, that the, the walls that used to be things like um, the cost of academic publications and so on are, are coming down. And uh, it, 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 it's kind of unprecedented. Like, we don't actually know how this is going to play out uh, or whether or not, not necessarily cooler heads, but more informed and more engaged heads will prevail. I think they will. I think the book is written in that sense that I'm, I sort of, went through quite a bit of academic research for it, but it, I deliberately didn't write it in an, in an academic fashion because I think there's, a, there's an alienation to it 
if if you try and write in that sort of way, and I, I, and you either do that or you do a public popular sort of science book, which assumes everyone's an idiot. And I really do believe that there's a there's a middle road, which is a new discourse, sort of outside of academia, but based on legitimate scientific and linguistic findings and and that, and that kind of thing. So it's it's kind of it's a it's an experiment. It's a bold one, which is like actually we can do this and we should do it because. There are there are politics behind it that we that should be empowering if we do it correctly. No, absolutely. Do you think that um that um paleo those paleogenomic studies are less politicized than archaeological sites? Uh, yeah, I do. As in ter- in in terms of the genomics, yes. If you talk about you know hominin research in general then the the politics still remains uh, my most frustrating one is the denisovans where they were named there was a finger bone found in in a cave in siberia so they assume it was there that they came from even though the highest degree of uh, denisovan admixture is again in what is now island southeast asia and and that high degree of admixture is a telling indicator uh, genetically that there was you know they've been there longer it's this is how you know you, you track mutations and the other one is uh, I think it was a Denisovan skull cap found on a shelf in a Neanderthal or earlier cave in Israel and they're saying oh they were here as well and I'm like that is a fetish someone has actually put that skull cap in a, in a you know it's on a shelf in a, in a cave so this is a magical item no one died like that and so you still get the politics in the in the hominin admixture, well, not in the admixture, in like the hominin research, and even just at a macro level, the idea that we um, originated in Africa is still more political than people realize. I mean, it it emerged from that kind of racist idea 120, 130 years ago that Africans were less evolved than white people, so they seemed to be that was that was a good enough guess for where uh, we came from. And that idea kind of held over because there were, you know, there are more apes there and, and more hominins that were being found there. I mean, a couple of them were frauds, which tells you a lot about, uh, you know, Darwinism. But today, in 2016, there are actually more hominins in Asia that have been discovered than there are in Africa, or at least there are, it's about even. So as to the sort of two-plus million-year-old origin of modern humans... Like even there, there's potentially a bit of, uh, shall we say, a ghost of politics because whilst the sort of out of Africa genetic project is is fairly well sound, that's only 70,000, 80,000 years ago. So we're still missing most of that two million years. And yes, there is, you know, evidence of, uh, you know, painting and bone scratches in in Southern Africa 200,000 years ago. Again, there's still this huge chunk of time and the the story's sort of starting to rebalance. And, and I think within the next 20 years, I've been saying it for years now, but I think within the next 20 years, we'll suddenly realize just quite how weird the Paleolithic was, especially once you get to the sort of 50,000 to 250,000 year ago realm. And it's going to look like, I've written about it for years and it was in some science thing I saw last week. It's going to look like the Lord of the Rings. Like we were basically living in a world of other near humans that we would fight with and fuck and and, and whatever. And they had similar levels of cultural complexity to us. They may well, it may well be that some of the very old sites that we find, uh, you know, Neanderthal or Denisovan builds, uh, they certainly were making quite complicated jewelry. 
So you kind of, if you're trying to model what this world looks like, you suddenly realize that these things emerge from, shall we say, a rich inner life, a rich inner life of songs and storytelling and, and, and stories about the stars and hunting and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and we've just kind of, since the mid 20th century, sort of put this 3500 BC cap on it because it was kind of too difficult to do the scientific research as to what happened before writing. It's just easier to sort of, in a really OCD way of, of kind of starting history when writing emerged. And even that is arguable if you look at, there are antecedents to say the Sumerian text and the hieroglyphs that suggest that we could even push that back further, but no one really has. And they, they've, they've abandoned it. We have this Jenga paradox. They've abandoned dating history from the beginning of writing because it has some sort of fraudulent political and, and, and racial assumptions. So they, it's been abandoned, but they haven't actually adjusted the story as a result. And that strikes me as ridiculous and weak and unnecessary. And, it'll, and it thus kind of falls to us to revivify that section of history, I think, in a, in a compelling way and in a way that is empowering from a political perspective. Definitely. Definitely. The thing I keep thinking of is, so, you know, like they, the other day they, they trained, a, or they announced that they trained an AI to play Go. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love to know in the, in the, the near future, you train an AI on all the, the data sets, what narrative it, w it would come up with from all the data points. Yeah, that would be interesting to see because uh, it, will, it will look like some sort of bad acid trip Zechariah Sitchin, uh, which is probably... Well, it's definitely closer than where we are now. I mean, there, there are some weird, even in just a materialist science view of history, there are some weird bits that they hope you don't notice, like the, the kind of official Dawkins position, as we've discussed before, is directed panspermia for the origin of life on Earth. Mm -hmm. And then, at the, you know, as I keep mentioning, there's the kind of pig-chimp problem at the, the beginning of modern humans, which is we're made of things morphologically that are half pig and half chimp, and it's like it's been accepted that that's the case and then they're just kind of hoping well it must have been some sort of retroviral transfer which doesn't work uh, in that way for that many features to cross between species so if you did give all these kind of question marks to an ai they will come up with something that yeah is crazy a, a bad acid trip sitchin i can't wait to see what happens <laughs> but see we can we can do that like if you if we methodically do it mm. that's the point you can actually just lay out it kind of reminds me of this is a weird example but it reminds me of it nevertheless when tony blair was running for prime minister for the first time he had a pledge card which is literally like it was a business cards type thing with a bunch of pledges none of which you know, happened uh, on the back of it. And that was like the Labour pledge card. And I think we need one of them for like the weird pivot points in the history of humanity that we can just either hand to people who would dare to tell us that it's wrong, like from a scientific perspective. Okay, Mr. Scientist, please explain these. And I mean that literally, like, please give me a scientific explanation for these. Or for, you know, on the other side of it, uh, deluded occultist types who probably uh, need to stop LARPing and, and actually face some of the scientific information that we actually have, which has always been, you know, that was literally what the Renaissance was. But uh, unfortunately, on both sides of 
on both ends of that spectrum, you have people whose personal identity is invested in selectively ignoring data points. No, exactly. So there's sort of an incrementalism and no willingness to just abandon and create a whole new narrative from the available data. Yeah, exactly. Like, how much rising damp and asbestos do you need in the house before you fuck off? Like, the house of history that we have is shite. Uh, and, you know, we, we're, we're sitting around waiting for the builders who built the shit house to come and build us a new one. And that's just not necessary. Um, so, I'm, I'll let you explain the Laurasian theory. And the, oh, will you? Well, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> I looked at the book, it's 560 pages. And, um, oh, well, you're it. missing out. You're missing out. It's, uh, it's remarkable. So, oh, I, I will. I will. But oh, I was going to say, before we get to that, right? would it be fair for me to summarize what you've done leaning on him to push back everything to 30,000 years and then refold Egypt, Samaria, Indus Valley using that framework? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I would have done it anyway. Um, so, I, like prior to Dr. Witzel's book coming out, uh, Origin of the World's Mythologies, I've, I'd been banging that drum for years because it was it was self-evident. So, funnily enough, uh, it was Dr. Stephen Oppenheimer's book, Eden in the East, which came out in 1999, I believe, that really did it for me. That made me realize that in the modeling of history, there are kind of like hard, hard science and soft science, and the hard science. Uh, you know, components like the, the geology and the genetics, which is not something that is subject to interpretation quite as much. So the politics of hard science happens before the funding, whereas the politics of humanity subjects are soft sciences, and really they're humanity subjects when we're talking about history and anthropology and so on. They're guesses. They're guesses that you then get someone who is paid slightly more than you and who is responsible for your career to say yes or no to. It's, it's, it's make-believe with, um, yeah, it's fan fiction, essentially. So it was Eden in the East that made me realize that if you just layer the things that we do actually know to the point where they're, they're not up for debate, uh, hard scientific data. And then you turn and look at the soft science or the humanities stuff again. You have to sort of, you, you suddenly see it regrid and, and actually make more sense uh, and sort of fall into it. So I, prior to Dr. Witzel's book, I knew that there was a rise of cultural complexity prior to 30,000 BC in island Southeast Asia before it was a bunch of islands and it was in fact a landmass. So I knew those pieces were there from a hard science perspective. But what Dr. Witzel did was family tree the mythologies of the world because there are similarities across the planet. And, and usually when you give that to the fringe, I guess the fringe of alternative here, they'll use that to say, oh, see, there's a worldwide story of people coming down from the stars and teaching you stuff. And you go, well, it's not quite worldwide. But so there are two answers to and, and these stories range in, in time from you know, 4, 000, well, 3500 BC Samaria to 1100 AD South America. So the idea that they're describing one event starts to get uh, really, really difficult. And they sort of just hope you don't notice as they click through the slides and say, see, here it is, here's Quetzalcoatl, here's this. And they, they just click through slides going, ha ha ha, and they go, you fucking, mo like, who's actually falling for this? Uh, if there was, a, and this was the kind of thing that I say, I'm still sort of open to it. If there was a civilizing event, in a 
you know, close encounters of the third kind way. Well, that'd be fourth kind. But anyway, for that to have occurred, that has to have been at a time depth of about 30,000 BC because these stories then echo and refract as populations move prior to the end of the Ice Age and then afterwards and, and, and kind of go on to colonize the planet. So funnily enough, I was sort of open to the idea anyway. And the way you can arrive at an approximate, like we're talking 10,000 years, so you know our civilization is at best 1,500 years old if you sort of date it to the collapse of the classical world. So the, the, when we talk about 10,000 years, civilizations can rise and fall in that time. But Dr. Witzel family treed as a, as a mythologist and, and someone who's been in, in the field for, you know, 40 years, he family treed the world's mythologies to look for the motifs that recur in them, like the world egg or the separating of Father Sky and Mother Earth or the killing of the dragon and all these pieces that people usually click through with slides saying, look, it's all the same, ergo, there are reptilians. And he arrived at a point, and he calls it Laurasia. So Laurasia is a word he invented. He arrived at a point about 40,000 years ago, somewhere in effectively Asia. He, because he's an Indologist, he wants to put it in like north of India. Uh, the genetic and linguistic information and the fact that Gunung Padang dates from around that time suggest to me that that should be pulled to island Southeast Asia or Sunderland. Uh, but he, he arrived at a point and sort of hypothecated the Laurasian mythology, which is the sort of emergence of a full mythological narrative from the kind of underlying um, animistic Gondwana forest of stories, he calls them layers that, that happened beforehand. And one of the things that I think is very compelling is he suspects or just posits, it's not even a suspicion, he posits that the Laurasian mythology, which sort of begins with the story of the creation of the world and, and goes through how the universe was built and how it was originally run by, you know, gods and then in a golden age and then there were sort of demigods and, 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 and heroes and we're now in this declined world. There's a flood in there somewhere. There's a hero who kills a dragon and then it ends with the apocalypse. And that's the kind of shape that we see everywhere in the Laurasian footprint. And he, he suspects that one of the reasons it was built into this form that he called our first novel was so that it could be better recalled for the purposes of, of, of singing it or chanting it or reciting it in a shamanic or ritualistic sense. Now, I find that very compelling. I think that's a very good idea. However, as a kind of like memory trick before an exam, it's not a very inspiring reason for the kind of reshaping of, of, of mythology at 40,000 years ago in the same way, you know, it's like sticking a magnet underneath a paper with iron filings on it. It, it. it shaped the existing stories that were there. So I'm not sure what that magnet was. Uh, I kind of go into what I suspect it may have been in, in terms of, you know, improving sort of stellar mythology, having a runaway climate change effect. I think that may have been it, which sort of doesn't tell us very much about who's on the other end of the line, but nevertheless, that's there. So we have a, a sort of emergence of a mythological shape, which he calls Laurasia, in the same place, more or less, that we have the genetic, linguistic, and geological evidence to show that cultural complexity was happening. And these are, these are sort of open and shut bits of information. Uh, and so I think we need to start looking, funnily enough, because his hypothecated 
Laurasian mythology, we need to start looking at what the implications of that are, because most of those myth themes have survived into the Western esoteric tradition, which presents us with the amusing situation that all those factually incorrect beliefs during the kind of late classical period that Hermes Trismegistus was, you know, a wisdom teacher from a time before the flood, kind of accidentally accurate. They meant before the biblical flood, and in that sense, they are not correct. But the the Laurasian shape and its sort of sky ground dualism and, and and that kind of way of engaging with the universe does actually appear to have originated at a time of high cultural complexity before the flood that came with the end of the ice age. Yes, totally. Um, well, I don't know where to go from there. Um, what I'm going to make an aside and then we'll work our way back. We're going to end at the UFO phenomenon, obviously. Just like Very good. Um, let's make a comment actually that the, what your book reminded me the most of that, that I've read in, in my own reading so far was, um, and I don't think you've read it, but we talked about it before. William Irwin Thompson's The Time Falling Bodies Take to Light, which... Yeah, I haven't read it. it, it we had discussed it. It's on my um, wish list on Amazon, but the used copies never get down to where I want them to be to be affordable. Yeah, I, I was gifted it. That's pretty expensive. Oh, well, well, well. But he makes a similar argument about the conservative power of myth, and he leans heavily on Hamlet's Mill in the middle. Yeah. But one of, the, one of the points that you can't explain that you do is the similarity of the is sort of he, he goes for the more Kundalini yoga thing straight up, but points to like the ritual sacrifices in South America being like a corruption of the heart chakra being opened and stuff like that. But emphasizing the similarity between those two things, but he has no explanation for it. Whereas you well, very excellent. Frankly, well, I, I have an interpretation. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't necessarily use the E word, but I don't think anyone has, and that really surprised me because I've been sort of banging this drum for a while. That it seems like an interpretive model post the last hundred and twenty years of science consciousness research was staring us in the face, and uh, it's just that no one, no one looked at that actual face, uh, and I, I think it's day one. Uh, I think the interpretation is solid given what we have and it, and it's now worth being, it's now worth kicking it around, kicking the tires on it, um, sort of seeing, seeing where that goes. But I, I think it, uh, I think it's the most ecumenical in, in terms of the sort of uh, data that the interpretation can cover. Now, just to be explicit, are you, are you referring to psychedelics or? Well, indeed. Both. I, in that case, I, I'm referring to why the magic, why those specific forms of magic were conserved. Uh, and it, like the, if you go down a yoga route, it's just not old enough. Like the, the, the Kundalini stuff and all that, it's just not old enough to, to backcast. And there's a whole chapter on that. Uh, I think, you know, obviously the Vedas cover information that goes way back in time prior to when they were actually first written down. But the, the Kundalini type form is, is later than that. So whilst parts of that, say, Laurasian or even by then, like Eurasian shamanistic worldview survive into the kind of uh, Hindu religions, 
you, it, it gets quite dodgy when you go backwards and forwards um, trying to pick p- pieces from Hinduism and, and throw them back. They're certainly there. I mean, Navali Chori has that famous uh, statue of the kind of guy, with, uh, what appears to be a priest with a snake running up his back and over the top of his head with the head of the snake at his forehead. Now that looks like a combination of, uh, you know, a, a kind of later Kundalini motif and the Urias that is worn by the Pharaoh in, in Egypt. So that's a good example of what Witzel's talking about when he says, well, there's, there's quite clearly an ancestor to both of these forms that has to have been around at a time that was at a sufficient time depth to have, to have influenced both of them, because that's an identical motif in, in a a similar ish geographical area. So I think, yeah, I think uh, in, in terms of the interpretation of why these specific pieces of magic were conserved, uh, it may have fallen to a magician to, to posit them initially. So do you think it's just pure Eurocentric, Eurocentrism that says everything started in Samaria and if it got to South America, it had to have been across the sea, from the, across the Atlantic, from that direction, that's just completely ignored looking at Sunderland and the whole southern hemisphere it's a, it's uh it's anglicanism centrism and just the imperial footprint at the time mm-hmm. so it's it's a bunch of things so the trouble is the sciences we need to interrogate these data have come through out of sequence so we got archaeology before we got a, a coherent form of geology and then it was only after that that we, well, long after that, that we got genetics uh, and, and, and that sort of improved climate modeling and so on. So when archaeology was emerging out of the antiquarianism of the sort of, you know, late 1700s, William Stukeley, Britain kind of world, uh, Britain kind of ran the world and they were all Christians and they had, you know, Middle East holdings and, and, and so on. And it seemed to them that even if, the suspicion that the Bible wasn't literally true doesn't matter. It still kind of probably described reality. So off you go to the lands that had this information, well, that were described in these tales and, and, and start digging. And there's another part of that. There's a sort of imperial propaganda part of that, which was potentially partially, uh, well, was maybe partially deliberate. And if not, it's just how empires think that once, once these lands were part of the British Empire, and the British Empire is very interested in the idea that it was the successor to Rome and that it was sort of ordained by God as this moral force to, to enlighten and civilize the world. And they were a Christian civilization. So once these holy lands, you know, fell under the Union Jack, there was a, a, a kind of political impetus to start digging and tell the stories of the Holy Land that is now part of the British Empire. Now, China does that now, and India does that now, and Israel does that now. So that's what, there's some politics to the, there's politics to digging, and, and that was one of them. So in the, in, in the case of the Eurocentric focus on Samaria, yes, it was also the first place we dug for reasons that I just described, like more or less the first place we dug. Uh, and they had writing which we which we kind of knew how to decipher, 
Whereas the Egyptians at that time, we didn't. Like we had to wait for the Rosetta Stone for, for that to happen. So there was this sort of confluence of out of sequence sciences that made us over-focus there. And obviously the racial bit, like um, New Guinea is filled with brown people. Uh, and when you get to Samaria, they didn't even, they weren't even Semitic because, I mean, they got that word wrong as well. It's a language group. But Samaria w was good because they were, they weren't that brown. Uh, they weren't Jewy. So it seemed like that was the place that this probably all came from and then and diffused out. They did the same thing with Egypt. They, they kind of made Egypt, even though it's in Africa, uh, monoracial and not black. Now, it was neither of those things. It wasn't exclusively black, and it, was, it certainly wasn't monoracial because it was a, it's a crossroads. Like that's, it's like assuming it's, it's like New York, essentially. Uh, but these were ideas that they hadn't, really fully thought through yet because the cutting edge biological science at the time said that some races were more declined than others. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, I think part of what we've failed to do is, and, and what you're very much attempt, what succeeding in doing is painting a much more complex picture of the past, the present and our evolution. I mean, that's something that goes, from, you know, we had that simple notion of the, the progress of man, the ascent of man. Yeah. And now we're like, yeah. well, actually, they're all, they're all fucking interbreeding and, you know, Neanderthals. And they were, and, and we've had repeated collapses as well. So the idea that you have a kind of clean and steady march from savagery into, you know, white people civilization, uh, it doesn't even match recorded history, let alone unrecorded history. So like the Romans were probably less than a century away from an industrial revolution uh, by the time of the, the Roman collapse. So they had um, their triremes turned the Mediterranean into a lake. It was more than a thousand years before the cargo carrying capacity of European ships matched the, the sort of late imperial Roman ships. But on top of that, if you look at Rome, they already had industry, like they were, they were um, using metallurgy at scale for the army. They were already using uh, hydrology because they're bringing water into the city from mountains. And not only that, they were using it in a, in a sort of sequence that involved steam because it sort of came in and, and the water went to the baths first and then from there elsewhere. So they had all the pieces in place. They had an industrial need uh, and they were using water and they were very good with lead and pipes. If they hadn't collapsed, they would have been, I think, less than a century away from an industrial revolution, like one that we would recognize, because in the book we go into a kind of um, sort of stone-based uh, technology that I, I think is missing. But that, that story is, is quite uneven, and, and it kind of makes you think about how close different cultures have come before or if they have and have just uh, missed the record. But, but Ro Rome is the kind of... Uh, is the cautionary tale or whale that says that like civilizations can get to a level of advancement that we would recognize and then collapse. Definitely. And um, I think part of what um, your book helps do is help us understand in light of current events that, you know, all this has happened before and, and we're still here. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's, I, if it has a, philosophical goal it's to provide the backstory to i would say a healthier way of, of living in the 21st century which is less acquisitional uh less technocratic and, and technology focused in a kind of 
repositioning of what is valuable in terms of like meaning and, and, and so on. So again, it's an, it's a no pressure thing because I don't, and I'm, I know you agree with this. I don't feel uh, the solution isn't to LARP. It isn't to kind of pretend the modern world didn't happen or isn't happening. It's to be kind of postmodern or, or, or post-technological and, and realize that some technology is useful for what it is, but it cannot replace uh, a meaning quest. So it, it's not about living in a cave or uh, going to live with the Amish as much as it is repositioning what meaning means to you. And especially now that we know meaning isn't associated with owning the latest iPad or whatever. <laughs> Sorry, that's hilarious. Tell that, to, tell that to 90% of people. I mean, we know. We know. Well, that's my point. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. well, if 90% of the people read my book, then that'll be great. <laughs> well, I can only try. Um, yeah. Do you think we're going to end up or that there will be, I just want to talk about Cloud Atlas. That, sure. That it'll be the Cloud Atlas after the fall. I mean, is there any way to avoid that? Well, I think we're in, I mean, we're in collapse now. It's just that it's not, uh, it's not dramatic in a, in a biblical sense. So a third of the world is at war. Uh, you're in, the, in the richest country on earth, you have cities collapsing and going bankrupt now. So Chicago and Detroit and so on. Uh, so you, we don't, it's not going to look like Cormac McCarthy's The Road. No. Uh, it's going to be sustained collapse. Uh, well, it's sporadic and, and random collapse. Uh, so we're, we're there now. I think if... I think in a hundred years' time, there's a there's a possibility you'll get like a localized cloud atlas thing because by then, we will have colonies on Mars that I mean we'll be dead, but we will have colonies on Mars that the likes of us will not be able to afford to go to, uh, and hopefully, as a result of hopefully we learn from the looming supply chain disruption and all the other stuff that's uh, that's about to happen as uh, as a monocultural world struggles to scale beyond where it is, especially as the money's running out. Hopefully in whatever post-supply chain disruption world where we have more localized um, food and meaning production, there will be pockets of that kind of <laughs> a positive version of, of, the, of the Cloud Atlas future. Um, but yeah, we'll see. That's, that's my guess. As we were discussing before the show, my, my best case sci-fi future is Firefly, of all things. Yeah. We just got to make ourselves useful, make sure we get on the ship. Exactly. Or, you know, win one in a game. See, you know, who knows how it'll go. The Titanic. <laughs> no, not the Titanic. What are you talking about? I said Firefly. Yeah, no, you said win one in a game when Leo wins the ticket. Oh, the ticket. No, I meant win an entire ship. Yeah, cool. I'll play that yeah. game. Yeah. I'll play that game for sure. Um, so let's, let's briefly backtrack and talk about my favorite new word. Geopolymorphization. Ah, uh, yes. Fancy Egyptian concrete. Um. So you in in your novel that so that's in in your book. Sorry, not novel. Um, that's your solve for all the megalithic structures. Not all the megalithic structures, but a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, it's a solve for. The otherwise unsolvable uh, stone-based complexity we see at the sort of beginning of recorded civilization and potentially backcasting it back. I'm not saying that, 
I'd be surprised if there are too many, say, Neolithic structures that use the geopolymer process, but it is a solve for big chunks of the kind of old kingdom Egypt-wide building project that includes Giza. They would have had to have got that idea from somewhere. Uh, I, I'm completely open to the idea that they, like Imhotep in particular, or someone like him, literally got that idea from extra-dimensional contact for whatever reason. But yeah, so it, it's essentially fancy concrete. So the geopolymer process was discovered or posited as a solve for Egypt by a French guy called uh, Dr. Davidovitz. And there is some evidence that some of the stones at Giza um, have magnetic moments that suggest this was the case. Because if you're sort of essentially pouring the, uh, the rock stones in place, they will align to the magnetic north of where they were poured. Whereas if they were cut, they'll align to their magnetic uh, moments will be pointing in different directions because they would have aligned to magnetic north when that stone was originally being laid down. So it's clearly, clearly something like that was involved in, in the building of Giza. And if you find it there, then it, it allows you to sort of look back at some of the other literally otherwise unsolvable problems with how uh, the old kingdom used stones in, in ways that were uh, advanced. They're barely possible for us today when it comes to uh, carving and diorite without any tool marks because it's one of the hardest substances on earth. And they, they shape these you know beautiful king statues out of them without, with, without a tool mark. And so um, when engineers look at this, they end up positing... Uh, industrial capacity in Egypt for which there's no other evidence. There's no pollution. There's no factories. There's no, you know, um, slag heaps or any of that kind of stuff that you would associate with something being produced in, in what we would understand as an industrial process. Nevertheless, the questions are there. Like it is, it is impossible to carve diorite with the tools that Egyptologists think were available to people in the old kingdom. So you need a solve, uh, and, and Dr. Davidovitz has one, which doesn't require spaceships or cars or uh, metallurgy of, of a kind of you know, 20th century level. It doesn't require any of that stuff. It requires the things that were always sacred to them, which is you know, stone and stars. So it seems to me that uh, that's the first place we should look. So does that... Um also explain the structures in South America, in the uh, high in the Andes, do you think? Like, like I, I genuinely believe it does. I, uh, they have that kind of marshmallow rock look, which you can't even fit a cigarette paper in between the sides, and they're all uh, irregular shapes for no... I mean, it, it's very good earthquake proofing, but we, kind of, we can't do that now. Like, it, literally any attempt by some, you know, shitty factual cable channels to even rebuild scale models of the pyramid don't work. Like, they, they literally never worked. And the same thing happens there. And it starts to make more sense when you realize they could be poured in place, especially as in the Andes, and the same thing with the what I believe are the um, older layers of the sort of uh, Abydos structures in Egypt. You not only have these irregular marshmallow rocks, but they are mirrored so each wall has the same irregular shapes so it's not just like oh we're going to carve this funny one and, and put it here and, and so on it's not like building a fence in uh, cumbria 
uh, it, and the fact that they kind of have identical irregular shapes on either wall suggests that they were poured from molds. And there's no, literally, you, you just sort of need um, cooking ash and the Nile to flood. You, you need things that, is, that are available at the time. And it's the same thing in the mountains. Uh, you can kind of make this sort of acidic geopolymer scent. It's not really concrete, but it is. It's sort of liquidized rock that um, you liquidize via a chemical process. Uh, and then suddenly you're in a situation of having people carrying baskets of goo to to pour into a mold rather than a, an absurdly shaped kind of crazy Tetris 30-ton block up a mountain for which there is no evidence that that happened. And uh, well, there's one kind of funny story that the Spanish told during their invasion of um, South America in the Andes of, of an attempted rebuild. I don't think this is in the book, but there was a, you know, some locals where there was about a hundred or so locals trying to pull this one relatively small rock with ropes up a hill and the rope snapped and it rolled back down and it killed a whole bunch of them. And the Spanish wrote about this in a faintly gleeful way. But that, that's, if that's the sort of peak of civilization and they can't get one replacement rock up without killing a bunch of themselves, then this process, uh, We've explained nothing for, for where this process comes from. And here's the point. We do actually need an explanation because you, you can't kind of do this archaeological hand-waving thing uh, or this historian hand-waving thing where it's a humanities subject so you can just make shit up. Uh, because if you do that, then it leaves, it leaves the door open to more swivel-eyed interpretations from the alternative end of history for the same reason that if you fail to account for the data and just pretend it's not there, then someone else can come in and say, well, I think an alien did it. Uh, and this is the problem at, at, at both ends of the spectrum. And if, if, if you kind of engage with the data, which history hopes you won't, because as we discussed with the AI thing, the story you paint is, is uh, remarkably different. And it says something about what's important in life and what isn't and and whether deliberately or not materialist history is the book of common prayer that goes alongside the kind of darwin materialist meaningless universe bible because that's what history does history is the stories we tell ourselves to support our worldview and at the moment it's being used to support a very psychopathic um worldview and only based on like a ignorance of the data or a deliberate misreading of it. Absolutely. Um, I think what your book and books like it that have come out recently helped do is paint a global picture. Yeah. I can't remember whether we talked about Sapiens before. Uh, don't know if we did. Um, but that, you know, does a similar, I mean, way less esoteric interpretation and go forward to give you know we kind of need a a global story not just a eurocentric or whatever and the way you paint the picture of not just you know one sort of like atlantis or whatever you know one culture going out you have this ongoing mix of people but obviously spreading from from sunderland at their own flood event with their techniques and then mixing with Indus Valley and mixing with Samaria and mixing, yeah? Well, yeah, that, and that seems to be a better data match because if it's if it was one civilizing event, then 
the cultures and the technology would look very similar uh, in the same way that when I used to live in Glebe in Sydney, this, the streetscape looks very much like the streetscape I'm looking at here in West London because this was the model of it. It's like, this is how you build townhouses for poor people. Uh, and and it's the same. You, you find the same thing in India. You find the same thing in, in you know any corner of the empire. That's a civilizing event based on a kind of singular understanding of technology. That's not what we see. That's not what we see when we look at the Maya, or the Olmecs, or um, the Indus cultures, or any of that stuff. What you have instead is, uh, you know, a local. Uh, evolved expressions that you know clearly come from some sort of uh, earlier antecedent and that's the other thing I like about uh, the sort of time depth of around 30,000 years or more for the kind of emergence of this cultural complexity enough time has elapsed to account for the different ways these things are expressed around the world because again otherwise you end up this is where alternate history fails in that sense the the sort of seven civilizing sages, which was quite clearly the Pleiades, but rather than physical people, the the cultures would have looked very similar around the world, and they, and they don't. They just have this deep structural similarity rather than the the sort of superficial ones that people focus on, like, oh, that guy had a beard, or, you know, there were seven of them. Like, what? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um... um. I, I don't want, I don't want to get to you at first. Oh, okay. So what you've done is you've told you've retold or you've re you've reconnected these the um what were considered the ancient civilizations with a with with an antecedent civilization. But you've done so with an agenda of reframing, recontextualizing the Western esoteric tradition, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Scarlet Imprint is, a, is an occult publisher and it was, the, the book was written for sort of operant magicians. It doesn't mean it's con, it contains spells, but and in fact, it's, it's finding its audience well and truly outside the kind of footprint of the, the sort of top of the magical pyramid, which is usually where Scarlet Imprint speaks. Uh, but th there was definitely that because I'm, th there's this current magical renaissance is one, uh, most of them were like this, including the actual Renaissance, but it is one of the, um, the restoration of context and the, and the repositioning of uh, largely historical information, but also scientific information and, and, and kind of cutting edge philosophical speculations to, to kind of repivot the ship uh, in, 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 a, in an improved direction. This is obviously an eternal process, but it's one that's going on now. So. In that respect, if you look at some of the uh, decent magical texts that have come out in the last decade, they've done a remarkable job of repositioning and rehypothecating or just rehydrating the story of Western magic from Alexandria to the modern day. My book, or even in the case of Jake's books from Archaic Greece in, so my book is kind of, bringing the story up to those points. It's, it's almost like a relay race where you go, and over to you guys, because kind of reconnecting that circuit the whole way back repositions their priorities for operant magicians. Now, that isn't a requirement for reading the book, uh, but that seems to be the, the feedback now um, from 
talking to people in the occult world saying, well, this has actually been really eye-opening from the point of view of my own magical journey. No, it's, it's, it definitely reads for the, for the non-initiated audience, I, I think. Um, I had, so if, for the, there's a few things in there, though, I'm just going to comment, that um, it, a, a reference here, and um, I think one of the phrases, so for people who aren't as well-versed, in, in magical lore, per se. Um, phrases like immortality via the stars. Is that, is that something you could explain for people so they understand it when they read the book? As in stellar immortality? Yes, thank you. Um, I don't know if that's specifically magical. That is, that's more, well, it, I mean, technically it is, but uh, that's more from an historical perspective. So the, the earliest versions of a kind of coherent Egyptian belief that appears in the archaeological record in written form are the pyramid texts, which are like essentially magical spells to secure the stellar immortality for the king by his association with um, Orion and Sirius kind of to the east and to the south, but also specifically the imperishable stars, which are the stars that never set because they're sort of in or around or circling the North Pole. So that journey, that kind of up and back stellar journey survives in magic and is obviously much, much older. So we go into the sort of Pacific variants and the Vedic and Sumerian variants, which suggests that that up down journey to the stars and back to secure immortality and, and to kind of, rebalance the world of the tribe is is probably a key piece of the Laurasian mythology at the sort of 30, 40,000 year old mark. I think that is like the the fundamental piece of Western magical technology. And it survives in in the Hermetic texts. Uh, and also because it's it's a at a sufficient enough time depth, it actually you have a kind of secondary around of it coming in from the Near East and, and the Chaldeans and, and through the sort of astrological magic that came through that way uh, before landing in the Eastern Mediterranean and kind of sloshing around Alexandria and, and, and on it goes up from there. But that's, I find it very compelling. That, and I, I think it's a widespread misinterpretation of that magical or shamanic journey that's, that's led to a lot of kind of post-Sitchin ancient aliens times because the, the, the stars, for whatever reason, have always been our home, mythologically speaking. And again, funnily enough, technically, if you go down the directed panspermia route. Mm-hmm. So the stars have always been our home and there is something about that journey that secures your immortality and, and kind of gives you the stamp of authenticity from the spirit world to command the spirit and the living worlds. And that's um, the earliest version of that we see in Egypt is associated with the king. But by the time we get, you know, three and a bit thousand years later into Alexandria of the classical age or the late, late period Egypt, uh, that's been well and truly democratized to sort of rogue philosophers and, and wandering magicians and, and so on in the form of the hermetic texts and, and associated ones. You, you, you find a similar journey uh, in the Gnostic texts, which were a kind of like cousins to the Hermetica. So that deep structure survived and democratized. And 
that's kind of my point. So I would I would look at all these historical books to do with magic, or even just magical books to do with history, that take the story back to Alexandria. And I'd go, that's fine. Like I, I'm with you there, but the story doesn't begin there. Like it, it, Alexandria was the New York of the day. Uh, it was cutting edge technologically, creatively, culturally, ethnically, um, from a trade perspective. It was the shit. Uh, and so when you see these pieces in there, they go, oh, that came from Alexandria. It's like, well, fucking nothing came from Alexandria, all right? It was a, it was a built city to, to control the conquered land that then ended up becoming, you know, the, the New York of the, of the Eastern Med at the time. And, and the deep structure, many people have noticed that the deep structure of, of Hermeticism goes all the way back to the old kingdom. So I could take it that far. Like it's, it's fine. There's the securing stellar immortality. We don't quite know how these things historically tumbled down because the, the afterlife certainly democratized over the, the dynastic Egyptian period. And we, there are certain, I think there were a few more cults and kind of like secret society things running along in Egypt than, than a lot of people suspect. And I was looking at some rather long uh, New Kingdom Book of the Dead scrolls in the British Museum the other year. And there's some that had two different versions of the weighing of the hearts. And the, the woman who, whose book it was, was the son of a scribe, and uh, the daughter of a scribe, rather. And I actually think she was a bit of a witch uh, because her arms are in different positions in the second weighing of the heart scene, which is, it's rare to have two of them. And I think what you're seeing there is uh, like, kind of like the initiated or, or, or secret version of the weighing of the heart, because otherwise you don't really need it. And I think a lot of this kind of technology, both with or without a direct, there's either a direct continuity in the form that it democratized out into folk magic and, and stayed in that respect, or it is presumed or speculated that the first Ptolemies, when they were put on the throne in Alexandria by Alexander the Great, initiated this um, translation project of the kind of wonders of ancient Egypt from the hieroglyphic into the Greek. And so it may have come from that project. It may have come from people sort of finding old um, pyramid texts and, and, and Book of the Dead kind of spells and, and converting them into... We don't have any of these texts. It's, it's an assumption because there certainly was a, a, a giant translation project going on. And in fact, um, the Old Testament was translated into the Greek for the first time ever in, in Alexandria. So that's what I mean by New York. They, they embarked on these huge cultural projects whilst trading and being multi-ethnic and presumably had a fairly good food scene. Um, so I don't... Like, how that... What was that? Is it on your time travel list? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, the, for, for actual practicing magicians, if you, if you kind of absorb, and I'm talking, talking with Jay about this on the weekend, actually, uh, and your conspiracy map, because I had one for Alexandria. I had like a classical age Alexandria map on the wall behind me. It's gone now. Um, with a different, like if you know, that the sort of main concourse matched the, the rising of the sun east to west. And if you take this street down here, here's the library and this is the Jewish quarter and this is, and, and you kind of lay it out. The, it becomes much, much easier to see 
the rise of of Western magic in context in the context of the city in the same way in London you start to understand the Victorian magical renaissance when when you walk those streets and, and, and match where the different things were and you realize certain people would have met each other at other pubs and and, and what have you so yeah it's, it's definitely on my time travel map but even without it I would recommend people conspiracy map it um, your book has just talking of witches or, or, or riffing off a, a, a similar point a bit further in time. Um, you have so many just great one-liners, and one of them I loved was you like, oh, in the Royal Society in brackets, who are all wizards, by the way, obviously, you know, and then you keep going. Do you think that tradition when you when you're talking about the antiquarianism and the anglicization of everything, but then you're sort of pointing out how many people were well plugged into the proper esoteric tradition back then. It seems unlikely that there was a direct continuation from, say... Not a direct, but, you know, yeah. a, a, a rebirth. Yeah, definitely. Well, funnily enough, from more or less uh, the Renaissance or the Counter-Reformation on, you probably can make the case for not an intentional direct continuity, but there were enough there were enough kind of routes for the for the signal to tumble down from when you consider that you started to get the rise of Rosicrucians and, and Freemasons and what I call the Hermetic Underground that happened as a result of the Counter-Reformation and, and what have you, people had to take these ideas underground and they, they sort of bounced around Europe and, and Britain and did start to re-emerge uh, or informed the rise of the Royal Society because they were all kind of, a lot of them were associated with um, Charles II when he was in Europe and, and particularly in France, which was very hermetic at the time. So, yeah. Um, I think there was enough of a continuity to... It's quite clear, and funnily enough, I think if you go back 120 years, Egyptologists would be surprisingly more open to esoteric information, like informed esoteric information, but also information from engineers and and um, geologists than the sort of fruit storm of retards that we have today. Because... They were they were coming from that tradition. Like we, we have this idea that Egypt is, is the home of wisdom and it's become the sort of folk belief across Europe. But some of it's kind of fair and accurate. And a lot of these early Egyptologists were inspired by that. I mean, they don't know it's not like it's a Freemasonic plot, but a lot of them, you know, would have been Masons, uh, or just really interested in the in the kind of esoteric renaissance that was going on in the 19th century and even a little bit before, but mostly since um, the 19th century because of the Rosetta Stone. And you, you can kind of see that they would have, some of the earlier interpretations, funnily enough, end up being, I think, a bit more accurate because they, have, they don't have to push through the sort of um, materialist, um, that, that that happens to history now. So, obviously, that's what you're trying to do now is also make a, a synthesis from a wider set of data. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a I have a background in data, and that's how you get the cleanest interpretation. It's it's by not 
selectively um, choosing the data points that suit you. You have to choose the ones that don't. And be brave enough to do that. Yeah, exactly. Well, like I kind of get it. Uh, my my economic future is not hinged, or well, does not hinge on what some old materialist academics say about me. And and, and this is the trouble. Academia's uh, gone quite feral because there's there's too many of them and no money. Uh, and that means that they're, they're actually getting worse and worse at these interpretations because they're getting more and more shrill and backstabby and and the politics that's that's always been there because it's 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 shaped like the medieval church which was also political uh is is getting worse and so like i mean my goodness if you just want to if you just want to <laughs> like despair of of the human quest for knowledge go to the British Library and take some of the more recent sort of proceedings from Egyptological Congresses out and look at the papers submitted. And it's just make-believe of the most boring minutiae. And it's, you know, by and large, and that's just really sad because we, we, you know, have, we've never been in a better position to provide an intertextual interpretation of history and it's not and yeah anyway that's the wasted opportunity it won't happen uh that the politics within and without egypt sort of prevent that but uh we don't need it to like this is this is the whole kind of point of the book we don't need their permission uh they don't gatekeep anymore it's still hard like you don't just get to make stuff up that's what they're for you actually have to to, to come through and and cohere the data points that well, as many as possible, um, whether you like them or not. The ideal scenario, the way I see it, would be the mythical robot future, where then we're all free to pursue our intellectual projects and, and tackle some of these still untranslated languages and things like that. Yeah, that's not mine. I think that's, uh, I think that's globalist nonsense and, and, and a universal living wages of... It's a it's a fucking disaster. Like if you if you want to see what universal living wages do, um, go to places that are third and fourth generation unemployed in Britain, uh, and 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 look at the the suicide rates and the crime rates. Uh, people don't spontaneously um, search for meaning. They need to be kind of involved in a community level. And funnily enough, if you track the crime rates between um, poverty doesn't. Poverty isn't associated with high crime. High unemployment is. So poor neighbourhoods that are largely employed have very low crime rates, uh, and ones that have this sort of third gen, everyone gets a house and 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 enough money to go and buy rice and cigarettes from Aldi, um, are just soul sinks. So yes, I don't. That's not my. I mean, I think we're going to end up getting there, but that's a nightmare future for me I, because we don't. We have not been very good ever, so I can't really blame the modern world for this, at giving humans the tools to find meaning for themselves, which is probably the quest. Like, that's what we're here to do. But no, one's, uh, no one does it if they're, they're in relation in that sense. So however nice that would be, um, yeah, be careful of that world. I think it'll be grim. Well, just to, to skip to Clyde Atlas again, because it's yeah. Scary that no one watches, but they should watch it. Hey, we do. We do, and we know, because we're initiated into it. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, remember, they're all, it's in the burger, in the burger joint, and they're just like mm -hmm. using the staff 
because they've got nothing better to do. Like that's just like a perpetual adolescent behavior. Yeah, and it will. It, I mean, it'll be great if you're a, a games developer or or some sort of subscription media thing, because it's it will just end up decaying in 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 state built cells plugged in. Like it's horrific, and literally. The idea that 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 that's not a guess—that's actually what happens. We forget that we've kind of done this. We we have had the, the socialist trials of of free housing and and universal living wages, and in the absence of employment, as in in the absence of the empowerment that comes from constructive meaning. I don't mean everyone should get out and dig trenches, but I mean the 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 psychological benefits of of actually being in work of some description. Uh, are remarkable and it's just yeah leftists leftists who write in the guardian don't see that because they're kind of hoping it they'll finally get to sit at home and finish that novel no one will read but that's not how the rest of the world works yeah exactly yeah it's a problem um let's 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 leave that despairing horrible bleak well that's why firefly so what we were just talking about is central planet's nightmare Yes. Go to the Outer Rim. Go to the Outer Rim. Or no. my other favorite part of your book, because it was completely new to me, was the, um, is it Sabians? The hermetic people of the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, um, I had no idea that that was a thing that existed in time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the Arab current uh, is weird. So what probably triggered Islam's... Uh, sort of tenth century Renaissance was that technically the the Quran says that you know you, you kind of have to value learning and, and value books, uh, and so when they when they got to Alexandria, what was left of it, as opposed to the Christians who were kind of killing people and whatever, they like actually our God tells us that we have to take this stuff seriously, and then they started translating it and um, moving it around their empire and up into Spain and and, and so on. So they ended up. Uh, that part, the, the sort of 500 to 1000 AD for um, Islam or the Islamic Empire is is its most interesting. And obviously when it peaked, I have no idea how they didn't... It's an open question as to why they didn't turn a Renaissance into an Enlightenment that would have kind of uh, given them a less um, Dark Age medieval view of the world that is technically still there now. Um, but yeah, that, that sort of stuff survived, and they were a lot weirder than than people think. I mean, the reason you had um, all these amazing fountains and and things in in Baghdad at the universities and and libraries was because this information they lifted from the kind of classical world texts that they were actually reading and and uh, and translating and and writing to each other about and actually having a discourse all the, like from Spain to Baghdad up to Haran and and what have you that there was actually a an intellectual economy um which we're you know quite fortunate to have the on the western side that sort of happened but it really only happened in in um in Byzantium rather than sort of spreading out uh, and it was with the fall of Byzantium that we got some of that um, back in via you know Venice and Italy and up and, and triggered the Renaissance, but yes, no that that piece uh, Haran is is an odd spot because it you know the Islamic Empire accidentally allowed a stellar pagan cult to continue for a good couple of centuries. If um someone wanted someone 
to some random person wanting to read more about that period, what would you recommend? Depends on what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depends on what level. Um, City of the Moon God, which is in the back. It's a. It's an. Uh, um, Tamara Green wrote it. She's uh, an academic. Uh, I think it was about 1992. So it's quite difficult to find uh, if you if you're planning to buy it. But it's fairly easy to get from a, a decent. Um, you know, library, academic library, and so on. That would be, if you actually want to know, like, that sort of story, I would, um, I'd go with that. Um, that'd be probably my favorite, um, if you're looking at it. Otherwise, the story of how that kind of works in, in Western magic is told in, in, in basically any book that tells the story of, of the Hermetica. So, um, Gary Luckman's books, Quest for Hermistries Magistus, um, The Hermetic Link, uh, any of these sort of books that will, like that take the story of how the Alexandrian current survived and it sort of splits east and west to do so. But specifically, Haran, the beginning and end of that kind of book is City of the Moon God by Tamara Green. Fantastic. Yeah, something that um, actually our friend, mutual friend Jay, as discussed online with me is how the fall of Byzantium, just how much knowledge was stored there, you know, and people sort of, they'll go Rome, 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 but it's like, you know, there was this all, all this knowledge and texts and stuff been stored there. Well, yeah. So, so you had a couple of Byzantine emperors who were quite keen to um, sort of recreate the semi-fictional, kind of high classical age of, of Greece with sort of philosophers wandering around and, and, and what have you. And uh, so the sort of Western or, or Christian current with the sort of second fall of Alexandria went there more than anywhere else. Um, if only because it was still culturally similar, like you're still in the, in the Eastern Med. Um, but also the, you, there was a, the ruling elite was more open to this idea, uh, you, you're starting to, in, in the Western church, I mean, it hadn't split then, but in the Western side of the church, you were starting to see the politics emerge more of how we take these uh, ecstatic cults and, and kind of hammer them into the shape of an imperial propaganda mechanism. Uh, so Byzantium was the place to go. I'm adding that to my time travel list. Oh, yeah, me too. Goodness. Yeah. So, um, how long have we been going? Um, let's talk about UFOs. Nah. More, more exactly, valet's control system, and will an extra-dimensional intervention save us from the bleak, state-run Cloud Atlas full prison planet future? Twenty-five dollars. Uh, not as a single event, but on an individualized event, quite possibly. And that was under 25 words. It's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, goodbye. All right. Thanks. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I'm so one, I, I have the Invisible College and I was reading your book and you, I didn't realize it was called also known as the, um, the psychic solution. So I actually went to look it up in the library the other day. Yeah. The, they are two separate books. Cause I have both. I have as many of his as I can get, but it, it's, written it around the same time, so you're more or less getting the same information. Um, but the, the re-release of Invisible College is, is a much shorter book than the, I am the original paperback. 
uh, UFO psychic solution. But you're getting the same basic concept. And if you want to take that one further, uh, messages of just messengers of deception is the kind of update of that idea. That um, yeah, bless it. It's funny. I just finished reading his journals, which obviously he published. I didn't break into his house, and um, Sorry. he's. It finishes with him kind of not not grumpily, but like he's talking with his wife about how he thinks messengers of deception is his best book and it's pissed off everyone so his previous books kind of pissed off half and half but this one's pissed off everyone uh and i mean he went on to write books that i think were like i think dimensions is still probably his best book but messengers of deception is is essential for for understanding where he's going and also the the journals um the journals are the, the cheat notes to ufology throughout the 20th century they're uh, they're essential if if people want an informed opinion on kind of that discourse so like okay like the end your end two chapters are basically saying you, you spent the whole book going okay here's sunderland let's recontextualize you know let's push back some of the dates on on sumerian indus valley and realigning everything and then at the end you go oh yeah and also they're probably guided by extra entities the whole time well, yeah, so the, the physical stuff is a necessary but insufficient description of the human journey. So we need it because we kind of need to know where the monkeys moved and, and what they did when they got there. But that's observation rather than explanation. And there are, there are pieces, I call redundant complexity, but there are pieces of redundant complexity in history, and in particular in the Paleolithic, that make no sense without some kind of model as to how that happened. And because it is, it is a, uh, you know, a book written for magic types, I was always going to get around to some sort of spirit extra dimensional uh, piece in it. Um, and, and the book is deliberately constructed as a way to kind of start with getting people's heads around where we are at with a, a rational and, and informed and as depoliticized as possible understanding of the human journey. And then from that piece, turn around and look at how we may model the weird and, and the origin points within it. Because if not, what tends to happen is you just sort of play bingo up and down the timeline with weird things. And that's how you end up with an ancient alien show where they're talking about something in 1100 AD or 1400 AD and then the Antikythera me uh, mechanism, which is, you know, amazing and is effectively a computer, but it's fucking 500 BC or whatever it is. So like, not even 500. So you're bouncing around going, these pieces don't cohere. You're playing bingo up and down the timeline. And that doesn't really work. You have to kind of see what happened and then see or attempt to model how that could have happened. And uh, so that's where, it, yeah, that's where we get into, into an extra dimensional component of it. And I think I've kind of positioned that in a way that needs to, as arrogant as it sounds, I think I've positioned that uh model in a way that now needs to be answered uh, it, it, this is this is something that people need to engage with uh, or not because it, it comes like with the rest of the book backed with a reasonable amount of uh scientific research uh, scientific opinion and and kind of like consciousness and, and psi models that probably say something very important, particularly uh, Gregory Shushan's stuff about ancient NDEs 
that kind of suggests very strongly that there is a deep structure to these consciousness events uh, or the components that contain that we would call a consciousness event such that we can look at some of that modern scientific information and kind of backcast it uh, in a uh, in a, in a in a more balanced way yeah definitely um so this is no i hope i'm getting this right this is the headless right yeah mm -hmm. that ties in like that when you're writing about Quebec Tepe as these two stellar beings and then it also being the headless right like that's and then your description of Imhotep having that that journey and getting the whole plan through a similar experience yeah well that's I speculate with Imhotep I mean he did the stories are that he he did actually receive this information from the gods, like his, his you know, mad skills. And Imhotep's really interesting to me because he's one of the few culture heroes at that time depth that we know did actually exist. Like Hermes Trismegistus is obviously a, uh, a hybrid between a piece of storytelling and, and, a, and a bunch of different gods stuck together rather than a specific wisdom teacher. And and Moses is is part of like he never physically existed as part of this kind of mythine type as well, but we have what appear to be funerary stat well parts of so we've got the feet of Imhotep from a funerary statue and, and a few other pieces which suggests that he did physically exist. So I I think he would have if the model holds he would have well and truly fallen into the category of a of a contactee, but I guess in in a funny way when you're talking about the headless right, what kind of instigated the shape of of the book of starships as as it currently well as it is shaped was the the realization that uh crowley accidentally switched on the ufo you know to to speak metaphorically because he performed a rite that is the headless rite is what we call it now it's actually called the stellar jew in the in the, in the greek magical papyri uh he wasn't. He wasn't even calling it the headless right because they they sort of mistranslated headless as bornless, um, or kind of mistranslated. It's boring inside baseball. Won't go into it. But he performed that right a couple of times in Egypt, and one of them. So the headless right. It, it's obviously about. It's a. It's a. It's a spell that associates the or identifies the magician with Osiris. Uh, I am Paphro Osirinophis, so I'm the Pharaoh Osiris. So it's an Osiris magical rite that he performed in this giant stone map of Osiris, which he didn't know at the time, uh, and then had a contact, uh, subsequently had, you know, something that looks like a George Adamski event. You know, he um, had this religious book translated by a star goddess, and there were weather phenomena and all this kind of weird stuff that happened around him as a result of it. Now, that struck me as very interesting because Orion recurs down to probably 50 to 70,000 years ago as a specific kind of hunter god form in the sky, very often with headlessness and, and very often as this... So it's essentially a Paleolithic deity, which he didn't know. He didn't know any of these pieces. And then obviously Gobekli Tepe wasn't uncovered. So for me, the kind of Crowley arc was a realization that there is extra-dimensional forces at play here. Like, 
yeah, there, there are, the synchronicities line up to suggest that there is someone on the other end of the line. And, and that always interested me. And, and I've kind of, I wrote about this a couple of years ago on the blog and it was reasonably popular, but um, actually talking to Chris Knowles about this yesterday, um, I've been saying these things for quite a few years and it, it seems like in, in, the, in the shape of starships, people are about ready to, to have that discussion because it, it fell on grumble bum ears in, in the magical world because um, the OTO thinks they have some sort of monopoly on, um, say, Crowley or, or what have you just because they worship him, which they effectively do. They're a, they're a UFO cultist cult. Hmm. Oh, we haven't talked about the Yazidis, but um, before we get to that, there's a, did you ever see, there's a, it's from the 80s, there's a really weird um, Isaac Asimov's TV show, which is like a millionaire and his secretary team up and like solve crime or whatever. And the final episode of that is about a sci-fi writer who confesses that all these stories have been dictated, dictated to him by like an alien entity that he doesn't even understand why. And that- no, I think I have not seen that or even heard of it. But I think more of that goes on than people realize. And, and you, you kind of have the, the counterclaim, which doesn't work either. So, you know, the, the famous Neil Gaiman thing, oh, I make up my stories, they come from my head. And I'm like, well, that's a, another glim, faux, whimsical piece of shit thing that Neil Gaiman says, but it doesn't explain anything. That's not, that's not an explanation. That's, that's a very poor observation, frankly. Uh, and it, that's the eternal, that's the eternal quest. It's why imagination and imaginal experience is so key to hermetic practice and even Gnostic practice, because that, that inner life, why it's there is, is the eternal question. So it, it's also this, I, I don't want people to misinterpret as, as this to say that these, um, these phenomena don't have physical components because the last chapters of the book very definitely go into how they do. But that, that is the most common interface between kind of mankind and the other. And it's the commonality of it that I think precludes a physical extraterrestrial event as the sort of origin of culture on Earth. Because, yes, you could probably, if you're going to make the case, you would have to make the case that that happened at a time depth of 30, 40,000 years ago to kind of trigger the Laurasian story and the pyramid building and, and all the rest of it. Fine. The trouble is these events happen with like considerable frequency throughout history, which suggests that it, that model doesn't work as an explanation for the rise of culture. A continuous interrelation between this realm and other realms provides a, uh, a better model for, for how these things work and also for why you will find potentially footprints or evidence of, of these encounters happening up and down the timeline rather than at one kind of boom point and then off we went. Well, I mean, if we say, when we say extra-dimensional, then we can say timeless at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah, the timepiece doesn't really work. I mean, it works for us, but that's kind of my point about the Crowley events, I can sort of tell the fingerprints of whatever these things are by the either the disregard of linear time or the the complete 
uh, confidence in its uh, sort of irrelevance. Uh, and it, it's that kind of headless Orion um, up-down immortality motif that you just see. It's almost like they, they took the timeline from even just Gobekli Tepe to Crowley and, uh, and, and moved it from 90 degrees to 180 or just kind of shifted it. Like you see points through the timeline, especially given what happened to Crowley's impact on culture and, and the space race after that. Like he, he kind of was the prophet of a new eon in a weird way because um, Crowley went on to, yeah, like influence the development of solid state fuel and the, the rise of, of rock music and, and, and all kinds of sort of 20th century pieces. And if you're kind of viewing that thread, it's not even a thread from sort of beside the timeline rather than in it, it makes a lot more sense. And it, it's funnily enough, when you can kind of discern that there is a there is an atemporal, at least one atemporal intelligence, or, or the shape of it seems so unusual that an atemporal intelligence suggests itself as, as one possible explanation. And, and I don't think we're very good at, I don't think we've got there yet. I think to, from now is the time that we need to start thinking that way when it comes to quote unquote ancient alien theory or, or what have you. If these things are, if these th things do have some sort of external other then, or other nature, then we're going to have to start looking for that kind of atemporal fingerprint motif. What comes to mind for me, obviously, isn't isn't Cloud Atlas, but it's, it's Babylon Five, and those the first ones just sort of rocking around, being really weird, and you sort of have the um, the trickster god as the the kind of the first first one. Well, yeah. So what Doctor Witzel did uh, was not only kind of carve up the world mythologically into Gondwana stories, which are a kind of um, hunter-gatherer forest of stories uh, approach to seeing the world, which didn't necessarily concern itself with its beginning or end. It's uh, Gondwana mythologies tend to associate, consider the universe to be eternal, and 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 the stories are, are localized about the origins of of tribes or or particular spirits or, or so on. So you have a continuous creation. So he kind of split the world into Gondwana and Laurasia, but then he did something which I fucking think is just genius and he built this like there's no evidence he says this it's like this is what i think based on the kind of family tree that i've observed of the world's mythologies what our first mythology was which he called pangaian mythology and, and it's based on family treeing back down from laurasia into the gondwana mythologies and say well based on the the kind of recurrence of themes up and down through them. Some of them are uh, presumably highly conserved across time. And the the kind of crucial one, I think, for this story is there's probably a high God creator who is just not involved with the running of the universe, like either it departs for a pre-existing heaven or what have you. But it sends down a civilizing God or being most probably almost commonly a snake. Uh, and there's some kind of taboo violation and it's either the, the being arrives as a result of this or it kind of teaches us something and then there's a taboo violation. Um, there's a sort of eating of the apple piece. So there's, there's a sort of civilizing trickster component 
at the very beginning of the world's first mythology, according to Dr. Witzel. And I think this idea is very sound. And I think it's very sound because however overused the word is, when we say trickster, it's this sort of catch-all for the highly odd, at least from our position in the timeline, view of these phenomena and, and what they do and, and how they show up in our life. And, and it's, it's sometimes damaging. Sometimes there are radiation effects. It's sometimes funny, but with its own sense of humor. And the fact that the, the sort of base, the earliest civilizing God we can find is very likely a trickster suggests that whatever these phenomena are, not only have they been associated with the development of, of human culture since as far back as we can see, which isn't at all the whole way, obviously, but that it was that it was kind of that first event uh, or, or, or the first time that started to happen that kind of began the journey anyway. And there's the ever so tantalizing possibility that that initial event uh, is retained in, in the stories of the world. No, absolutely. Um, this this order unpack something. You, now you say civilizing God, right? Well, a culture delivering God. So someone who sets the laws and the taboos and um, shows people how to hunt with a spear. Not civilizing God, like here's how you build a spaceship. Although, again, when you have so I, I open the book with um, a sort of reference to a British philosopher, Patrick Harper, saying you don't ever explain a myth, you just retell it in a, a less satisfying way, which the, a civilizing God, when you're talking 70,000 years ago, isn't, isn't like a Jodie Foster contact event. But the Jodie Foster contact event is a modern retelling of that initial one. You, you don't, uh, you, you get into this infinite loop, which is kind of the point with AAT or a, a physical alien Sitchin view of history. It doesn't explain Sumeria. It just retells it in a more annoying way. Mm. No, I read a, a really annoying version of Gilgamesh yesterday. <laughs> and it was just frustrating. Um, so one where, where I was sort of going with that is, do you think that some of the, the hero myths of the, the slain of the monster also trace back that far to when we were prey? Well, yes and no. Like, we're still prey. So yeah, but, it just depends on, on where you are in the world. And that... Uh... You know the whole thing where we see green because we had to look for the monsters in the, in the savannah? Yeah, I, that's all fucking evolutionary psychiatry, uh, psychology bullshit. Uh, like, it's it's a just so story. Yeah, it's a it's yeah, it's a just so story. Um, yes and no. Uh, I I think our status in the food chain is um, is evident in a lot of places in mythology. I think the the sort of dragon slaying motif or the or the monster slaying motif particularly at, at that time length depth when you're at the sort of fifty thousand and, and earlier years ago mark yeah. yeah i think is more to do with how we incorporate the killing of animals which we do so mm -hmm. uh, i think it's kind of a, a a psychic echo of 
the hunting process, which is actually in, in hunter gatherer societies, it's always ambivalent. Like they're aware that they're killing something. Um, and, and that has, that has consequences. So I kind of think you have a, and I think the, the slaying of the monster or the, or the killing of the demon for the creation of the world yeah. is an explanatory, it, it's a way of singing a song about, I killed this creature, but I've killed it so that the tribe may eat. And it, and it not like justification is, is a is is too simple a, a word for it, but I think that um, the psychological event that is killing an animal to feed a tribe at that really deep level is where is where these things come from. And and funnily enough, that makes it quite a potent myth theme to explore from a magical perspective because it is about how we survive in in the universe and 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 what that costs to us and what that costs to other people so there's there's a lot of profundity in 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 those early myths because they they deal with the same questions we deal with now which is what it is to be alive and and what the meaning of it is and and how we we sort of find our little corner of the sky Mm. definitely um this is where I've run out of questions. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to talk about? No, we're, we're going to talk. That we've definitely talked through the book. It's been a great book discussion. Okay. Were we going to talk about other stuff? I forget. Nah. We have been we have been on it for a while. But um, what I what I was going to promo was your own podcast. You, you just said you're uploading it. I've been enjoying it. I'm a bit behind, but I've been enjoying it. Well, they're weekly, you know. Unlike some, whatever. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything's available. Oh, is it? Well, I did one last week, and I'm doing one this week. So yeah. oh, there you go, two in a row. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's all available at runesoup.com, and the book is, as previously mentioned, available at scarletimprint.com. What's your What's your latest podcast about? It's with Judica Isles, and it's about spells and tarot. So it's a it's a proper magic one. It's it's a good one. I mean, they've all been good, but uh, yeah. The one with Cat was um, I I learned things in that. I've been talking to that guy for years, and I still learn things I didn't know. Yeah, same. Um, let me just really think for one second before I go. I forgot to ask him about this. Oh, the Olmecs. How come you didn't talk about the Olmecs in the whole book? Well, because as you kind of said, maybe slightly inaccurately, it's a it's a global story. It's not a global story. Um, it's the story of how certain which myth themes from the Western esoteric tradition have survived from before the end of the Ice Age. So it is a broad southeast to northwest journey, beginning in Ireland, Southeast Asia, and, and ending up effectively in London, because that's where I am. Uh, so it's it's that journey across two-thirds of the landmass. And I actually mentioned that somewhere i think in the island of dragon story uh, a chapter that the america's story continues on it's just that it what happened in the americas didn't influence the development of western ericism until europe started colonizing the americas and then it very much did and we had a sort of backwards and forwards particularly through the grimoire tradition and, and spiritualism but up until that point um the journey was southeast to northwest there is a whole nother book in uh, in the sort of Sunderland to modern day America journey, and it's uh, it's not mine. 
uh, well, it, it could be, but I, it's quite expensive to, to live there. And uh, believe me, there, there are better people out there, particularly when it comes to like First Nations, North America. For me, I'd like to read that book, so somebody should write it. But there's like, I, I kind of have to let go of um, the Americas in the story because it doesn't influence it. And it's already 112,000 words. I would literally never finish it if I was trying to do the whole thing for the whole world. Understandable. But that, the way what you're telling folds in the Americas as part of this whole, and I'm not going to say global, but you're saying, you know, multicultural influence back and forward society um, is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think someone should as well. There's, there's quite a bit of genetic and sort of paleo-botanic evidence for uh, contact across the Pacific like from sorry from before the end of the ice age and one of the most telling sort of sites for that i think is the olmecs so yeah it's definitely it's somebody's story um and that book needs to be written uh, in in like you can sort of read something like atlantis in america by um i think it's a david hatchett it's it's definitely an adventures unlimited publication it may not be a dhc one but if you've read Starships, then you can read something like Atlantis in America or even go back to Fingerprints of the Gods um, by Graham Hancock and and kind of look at the available evidence with the sort of with with new eyes in a, in a, in a post-Laurasian, post-improved uh, understanding of the Ice Age sense of the word and get a lot out of it. So you can kind of pretend you've written the book or read the book by reading those two after you've read Starships. Uh, so that's sort of what I tell people who want to do that. I'm like, go and read all the fucking weirdo Atlantis in America books after you've read Starships, and and um, and you'll start to see the pieces show up. I think. Mm. I think what um, what I was trying to get at before when I was talking about Eurocentrism is like the narrative that if you went to school, whatever, and you actually paid attention, or whatever, you have this whole East, Samaria, India notion you know of, of a map of, of lines and you know alexander the great going forward and that's sort of whatever but people don't and where and what the story you're telling helps convey is that there was just a whole lot more going on in the southern hemisphere oh yeah yeah, yeah. so you know, well i'm born and raised southern hemisphere so it's it's time to represent uh i, I absolutely agree and that is definitely an echo of the fact that uh, history first was written in books in in a global sense in in drawing rooms in Amsterdam and London, uh, and and it has a it's not just Eurocentric it's a really Northern European cold trading view of of the world and and the Southern Hemisphere is just a place where there are um, lots of spices and attractive brown women and um, and it's it's anyone's for the taking and that's just it's not the case we we like. As far as we can tell, um, the human journey started in the Southern Hemisphere, so we're, we're like the originals, motherfuckers. <laughs> Definitely. That's, I think that's the perfect place to end. Yeah. <laughs> Go out on a high. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gordon. This has been fascinating. You're very welcome. Um, Always a pleasure. Um, continue enjoying your uh, little podcast tour and whatever else you got lined up. I will. Thank you, Mikey. Okay, good. I'll talk to you again soon. Nice one. All right. Cheers, mate.
Okay, thanks for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Gordon. He's sure to be back again sometime. Uh, we have, always have a lot to talk about, and I really enjoy chatting with him, as I hope you could figure out. So, if you are listening for the first time and would like to subscribe, the easiest way is to just go to my website, mikey.com slash podcast, that's m1k3y dot com. You'll find a playlist there and uh, links to all the usual podcast feed services, as they say on the internet. Oh, that's it for now. Oh, and uh, that's the other thing. You can um, get all this early if you're happy to support my work. Just go to patreon.com slash Mikey again. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And, um, yeah, see you next time. Cheers.